Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The word of the Lord. Well, in the weeks leading up to Easter, we're looking at the big questions, uh, the big objections and obstacles that people have to faith in God, and especially to faith in Jesus and Christianity. Uh, I mentioned last week that there are a lot of resources and books that um, I'm accessing to help me with this series, but two books in particular that have really formed a lot of the inspiration and the information uh, for this series uh, in particular are, one of them is The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Another one of those books is The Problem of God by Mark Clark. Uh, if you want to learn more um, and dig deeper into the things we're talking about throughout this series, these are two excellent resources, and uh, they're very accessible, and uh, I, I commend them to you. But this week, we're going to look at a question um, that honestly is uh, something I wish I didn't have to talk about, and that's the question of hell. Um, in fact, I'm probably like a lot of other people. If there were one doctrine in Christianity that I could get rid of, it would probably be this one. I don't know anybody who really likes the idea of hell. In fact, um, the doctrine of hell is so repellent and so awful to people that many people reject the rest of Christianity simply on the basis of this one doctrine alone. It's that awful. So I wish I could get rid of it, but I can't. In fact, many people have tried. Uh, there have been many streams or groups within Christianity that have tried either to soften the doctrine of hell or to get rid of it 
entirely. But if you try to do that, you've got a problem. And the problem is the person who talked most about hell um, and from whom we have the most information about hell is Jesus himself, which means that if we want to get rid of hell, we have a problem because I very frequently will hear people say something like, you know, I, I find it very difficult to believe in a God of wrath and judgment. No, I just believe in a God of love. I just want a God who loves and accepts everyone. Now, here's the problem. Where does that idea of a God of love come from? It comes from Jesus. The, the idea of God as a loving God, the idea of a loving father who cares for his children, that idea comes from directly, directly from Jesus. You will not find that concept in any other religion except Christianity. That idea is only in our culture because of Jesus, which means we've got a problem. If you want to get rid of hell, you've got to get rid of Jesus. But if you get rid of Jesus, then you've got to get rid of the God of love. That means that at least in Jesus' mind, it was possible to hold together both this God of judgment and this God of love. In fact, Jesus is showing us that unless you allow God to be a God of judgment, he cannot also be the God of love that we so desperately desire. There is no subject, believe me, that I would rather preach on less than hell. But for that reason, it's probably one of the things we most need to look at. You know, there's a principle that I learned many years ago reading C.S. Lewis. He once said, when you encounter a difficulty in Scripture, you may expect a discovery awaits you. In other words, he's saying that it's in the hard doctrines, it's in the repellent doctrines, it's in the difficult doctrines. Those are the places where the biggest discoveries await us if we're willing to go there. But if we, you know, we just want to lollygag and just kind of skip over those doctrines, maybe even reject them because they're too difficult, they're too hard to understand, we don't like them. If we do that, we're actually cheating ourselves out of some of the most life-changing truths and discoveries that the Bible has to offer us. Are there problems with the doctrine of hell? Are there intellectual and existential difficulties with this doctrine? Yeah, you bet there are. But there are even bigger problems and difficulties without it. What do I mean? The doctrine of hell reveals the true nature of things. It reveals the true nature of things. We're going to look at three of them this morning. We're going to see that the doctrine of hell reveals the true nature of ourselves, the true nature of justice, and the true nature of God's love, okay? The doctrine of hell reveals the true nature of ourselves, of justice, and of God's love, all right? First, it reveals the true nature of ourselves. One of the most common objections to hell goes like this. How can a loving God, a loving God, send good people to a place of eternal punishment simply for not believing in Jesus? That, that is a fair question, but at its heart, this objection is based on an assumption that hell is something God does to people. It's not. Hell is not something God does to people. It's something we do to ourselves. So look at what Jesus shows us here. You have a rich man and you've got a poor man. One of the things that all the scholars and the commentators notice uh, about this, and they've noticed it for centuries, is that the poor man has a name. His name is Lazarus. But the rich man, he has no name. This is deliberate on Jesus' part. Jesus is showing us something. Notice in verse 25, Abraham says to the rich man, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. 
He says, you received your good things, past tense. In other words, he built his identity on money. This rich man built his identity on riches and luxury and wealth and things like that. He built his identity on money, but when the money is gone, his identity is gone. He has no name. This is one of the core teachings of the Bible on what it means to have a self, on what it means to have an identity. Because every single person builds their identity on something. You have something that you're living for. You have something that is your highest good. You have something that you worship supremely. You may not think that, that you're a, a worshiper because you may not consider yourself a religious person or even a spiritual person. But every human being is a worshiper because every single human being loves something supremely and builds their identity on it. And here's what Jesus is showing us. Look, there are many good things in this world. Money is one of them. There is nothing wrong with money or luxury or wealth or riches. There's nothing wrong with marriage or family or children or success or career or status or achievements. There's nothing wrong with, with being a good or moral person or devoting yourself to a cause. Um, there's nothing wrong with living a religious life. It's good to do things like pray and worship and live a holy life. All of those are good things. But but Jesus was constantly condemning the religious, religious leaders of his day because they were taking their holy lives, their moral performance, their religious performance, and they were building their identities on it. Jesus is saying, these are all good things, but if you take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing, if you build your identity on it, if you take anything and make it more fundamental to your sense of self, your sense of security, your sense of identity, then God and his love for you, then you're building your identity on something that cannot last. And if you build your identity on something that cannot last, guess what? You will not last. You will have no name. There will be no you left. But here's the really scary thing about this. The part of you that made that choice will last forever. Hell reveals the true nature of ourselves because hell reveals the nature of what it means to be a human being created by God. God created every human being, every human soul to last forever. And God created every human being with dignity, the dignity of freedom, the dignity of free choice to choose either to build your identity on God or to choose to build your identity on something else. And God will not override that choice. He will not override your dignity. Hell simply means that, that your choice to build your identity on something other than God lasts forever. Hell just means that your choice to build your identity on something other than God lasts forever. So for instance, look at the rich man in this parable. He's in hell, and in verse 24 he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now notice that this rich man still wants Lazarus to be his servant, He's, he's still clinging to this identity of himself as this rich lord, this ruler of people. It's a false identity. It's a false self. But he will not let it go. Notice something even scarier. He wants some water on his tongue, so he's asking for comfort. Essentially, he's, he's asking for Lazarus to come to where he is, but he's not asking to get out. He's not asking for forgiveness. You know, a lot of times we have this image of hell as this place where um, souls are being tortured and they're climbing up the walls of hell trying to get out. But then God put devils there with pitchforks to ram them back in and say, no, you get back down in there. 
That is a false image of hell. Hell is not a place where anyone is trying to get out. C.S. Lewis used to say that the, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Now, think about this. The two main images of hell, what are they? Fire and darkness. Now, in the first place, these are metaphors. And some of you say, Phew. But the reality is that the metaphors are there to tell us about something that's actually far worse than real fire or darkness. I mean, think about what fire is. Fire means disintegration. Any soul that chooses to build its identity on something other than God is slowly disintegrating already. Because if you build your identity on something that cannot last, you will not last. You will disintegrate. But think also about what darkness means. Darkness means separation from God. Hell is the place where your choice to build your identity on something other than God lasts forever. And if ultimately what you want is for God to leave you alone, oh my goodness, hell is the place where you get your wish. In fact, there's a place in Romans 1 where Paul said that the worst thing God could ever do to somebody is to give them what they want. In Romans 1, he says that, that God gave them over to the desires of their heart. It's the worst thing he could ever do to you, give you the desires of your heart. No one's ever described this any better than C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis described hell this way. He said, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish that you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will of itself be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. In fact, Lewis himself gives us the most poignant picture I've ever encountered of what hell really is like. It's in the end of his um, Narnia books. He wrote this series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia about this wonderful, magical world that's ruled by this great lion named Aslan who's really Jesus. And in the very last book at the end... Um, everyone's going through a stable door. Uh, uh, there's a stable and there's a door and then they go through the door of the stable and they end up in a world that's even more glorious and wonderful and beautiful than the original Narnia. But there's also a group of dwarfs that go through the stable door. But when they go through the door, um, their hearts are so hardened and cynical and resistant to Aslan, that not only can they not see Aslan, they can't see the beauty and the glories of the world that's surrounding them. As far as they can see, they're in a dirty, nasty, stinky black hole. They're completely blind to the glory uh, that surrounds them. And they keep on saying things like, the dwarves are for the dwarves. We're not going to let anybody take us in. They're skeptics. They're cynics. They don't want to be taken in. So the little girl, Lucy, one of the heroes in the book, she says to Aslan, because she's filled with compassion for these dwarfs, and she wants them to be able to see the world that they're in. And so she says to Aslan, please, Aslan, isn't there something you can do to help them? And Aslan says, dearest, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. What he does is he goes over close to the dwarfs and he just gives a really low little growl. 
But they think it's a machine that their enemies have set up to hurt them. And then Aslan spreads out a rich, delicious banquet in front of them. But the dwarves are so blind to the reality of Aslan, they're so blinded by their self-centered cynicism that they think that this delicious feast is just a bunch of garbage and slop. And they end up fighting over it and fighting against each other because each one of them thinks that somebody else got something better than they did. They are completely blind to the reality of Aslan and to the glory and the beauty of the world that surrounds them. It's not just that they cannot see it, it's that they will not see it. They just keep saying, we haven't let anybody take us in. We refuse to be taken in. And so Aslan says to Lucy at the end of that, he says, you see, they will not let us help them. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they will not be taken out. Friends, hell is not something that God does to us. It's something we do to ourselves. It's our choice. And God will not override that choice. And before we move on, let's just apply this really briefly. This invites a question, and the question is, what are you building your identity on? At the end of the day, there are really only two choices, you or God. You can either build your identity on self on your performance, your goodness, your assets, your capacities, your own inner wonderfulness, or you can build your identity on God. The choice is yours, but God will not override that choice. If you build your identity on something other than God, you're building your identity on something that cannot last, and you will not last, but the choice, the part of you that made that choice will last forever, literally and eternally. Now, that's the first thing we see. Hell reveals the true nature of ourselves. But secondly, hell reveals the true nature of justice. You know, another objection that people have to the doctrine of hell is that it makes us intolerant and hateful towards people who are not Christians. In other words, many people say that if you're a Christian, how are you going to treat other people with, with equal dignity? How are you going to treat people with equal rights? How are you going to avoid oppressing and marginalizing and demeaning other people? That's a really fair question. In fact, you know, I think especially when we've all seen Christians that act that way or worse, and we're going to take a look at that question next week. But for now, what do we say about this objection? Does believing in hell really make you intolerant and abusive toward other people? Well, not if you really understand the doctrine of hell, it doesn't. First of all, look again at verse 25. When Abraham talks to the rich man, this damned soul What's the first word out of Abraham's mouth towards him? He says, child. He calls him child. The Greek word is technon. It's a word that is used to refer to the tender affection that a parent has for their child. In other words, there's compassion here. There's real grief over the situation. This is an expression of the very heart of God himself. You know, there are many places in the Bible where God is pronouncing judgment on people. Uh, let me give you just one example. In Isaiah chapter 16, God is pronouncing judgment on the nation of Moab for their injustice and their oppression. But even in the midst of the judgment, God is crying out for them. So it says this, Joy and gladness are taken away from your fruitful field, and in the vineyards no songs are sung, no cheers are raised. I have put an end to the shouting. That's God pronouncing judgment on Moab. But then he says this, Therefore, therefore my inner parts moan. 
like a lyre. It's a stringed instrument. My, they moan for a lyre like Moab and my inmost self for Kirharaseth. There's actually a place just a few verses before that where God says, I weep with weeping. I drench you with my tears. This is God pronouncing judgment on people, and yet he's weeping over them. He's in grief over them. He's in torment over them. God weeps over those he judges. How much more should we, especially since we don't know? Friends, we don't know. There is no way anybody in, in the world can ever say we know who's going to hell and who's not going to hell. You could look at people. You have no way of knowing who's going to end up there and who's not. Who are we to judge? We are no one to judge over this. But even more than that, far from making us more judgmental, the doctrine of hell rightly understood, it actually takes judgment out of our hands and puts it back where it belongs in God's hands. It prevents us from usurping God's role of judge of the universe. And let me show you why this is so important. You know, we in the West especially really struggle with this idea of God's judgment. You know, for us, the question is, well, how can I worship a God who judges? That's the question we ask. May I suggest to you that that question itself betrays our privilege? That, that when we ask the question, well, how can I worship a God who judges? That question reveals our privilege. What do I mean? You know, there are a lot of people of color in this country, African-Americans, who've lived lives where their homes, their lives have been tortured in this country. They have been the victims of terror in this country. What if you're one of the people that live in villages all over the world where men, women, and children on a daily basis are raped, tortured, killed, or abducted? What if you were one of those people? Would the question those people are asking be, how can I worship a God who judges? The question they're asking is not that. The question they're asking is, how can I worship a God who fails to judge? That's the question. When we fight oppression, how are we going to keep from becoming oppressors ourselves? The doctrine of hell. If someone attacks you, how are you going to keep from plunging headlong into a never-ending downward spiral of endless revenge, retaliation, and violence? The doctrine of hell. Only if you know that there is a God who sees every act of injustice, every act of evil, no matter how small or trivial, and who one day will set everything that's wrong to right, only if you know that, far from making you more intolerant and vengeful and violent, that would make you a person who's more able to work for peace in this world because you can cry out for justice without picking up a sword. Every human being knows, every human being knows instinctively that injustice cries out for punishment. And even more than that, that injustice and evil cry out for condemnation. We know that instinctively. In fact, we've witnessed that have we not, in our own culture, the advent in our own culture over the last handful of years, this culture of outrage, of moral outrage? You know, when I was a kid um, growing up in the 70s and 80s, the reigning intellectual paradigm of, of the day was moral relativism. Moral relativism says, well, no, who's to say what's right and wrong? Everybody has to decide that for themselves. There's no such thing as absolute right and wrong. Intellectually, in our culture, that's still true experientially, practically, everything has changed. Intellectually, we may still say that we believe that, that we're relativists intellectually, but experientially, everything has changed in our culture. Well, practically speaking, there, we, we are outraged by everything. 
We cry out for condemnation on every act of injustice and evil we see in this world because evil cries out for condemnation. We know that instinctively. In fact, to fail to bring justice on evil would itself be an act of evil even greater than the original act of evil. When we see evildoers getting away with it, everything inside of us cries out, no, that's wrong. We know that. And I think I can prove my point to you in the amount of time it takes to say Dolores Umbridge, senior undersecretary to the Minister of Magic and High Inquisitor of Hogwarts. Right? If you grew up reading the Harry Potter books or watching the movies, as soon as I said that, your blood pressure just spiked. <laughs> you got angry, right? Why? Because she is evil incarnate. If you know the books, if you know the stories, this woman is the most cruel, vindictive, vicious, spiteful, hateful, small-minded, intolerant, bigoted, um, violent persecutor of little school children who are just standing up for the truth. Amen. I mean, this woman carries on a reign of terror throughout the whole of book number five, so much so that by the time we get to the end of the book and she's finally carried off into the forest by the centaurs, you know those creatures that are half man and half horse, you just want to go, yes, finally, you're crying out for justice. In fact, we've talked about this before here. You know, the Bible, one of the primary themes in the whole Bible is, this, is the theme of social justice. One of the primary concerns of the Bible is this concern, passionate concern, for the weak and the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, for those who are being victimized and abused. The Bible was woke way, way, way before the rest of the world was. In fact, one of the places in the Bible that where this emphasis on social justice is strongest is here in the Gospel of Luke. I mean, all of the Gospels are Luke, but Luke is probably the most woke of all the Gospels. And I think that, that um, this main theme shows up here again in this passage to teach us something. Because what do you have? A rich man, a poor man, and the reversal of roles. Jesus is showing us that if you really want to be woke, if you really care about social justice, then you need the doctrine of hell. Unless there is a God who will one day administer final, total, perfect justice, then our only alternative is to render that justice ourselves. And friends, that has not gone well for humanity. That has not worked for us over these thousands of years. The doctrine of hell frees us from the never-ending cycle of retribution, revenge, and violence that has constantly undermined all our best efforts at justice in this world. Friends, the, gospel, the doctrine of hell reveals the true nature about ourselves. It reveals the true nature about justice. But lastly, it reveals the true nature of God's love. This is maybe the biggest objection to hell because people say a God of judgment is inconsistent with the idea of a God of love. God can't possibly be both a God of love and a God of judgment. I want to say to you with all gentleness but with all firmness, this passage shows you that you're wrong. Jesus says you're wrong. Because the question is this, what's going to change your heart? Hmm? What's going to pull your heart off of all the self-centered attempts that you have to build your identity on something other than God. 
Because here's the real challenge for God. The challenge is not to get you out of hell, but to get hell out of you. That's the challenge. And what's going to do that? Well, here's what will not do it. At the end of the parable, the rich man asks Abraham, Hey, Abraham, send Lazarus back to warn my brothers so that they won't go to hell either. The, the rationale that the rich man has is, Look, if they see a ghost come back from the dead and they realize that hell exists, they'll get afraid. They'll change their ways and they'll say, Uh-oh, I better change my life because I don't want to go to that place. What's the motivation for changed life in that scenario? Fear. Abraham says to the rich man, it'll never work. It's very interesting. Jesus is saying to us that fear is an insufficient motivation to really change the deepest structures of your heart. It will never pull the self-centeredness out of your heart. It will only make it worse. Why? Because if you say, oh no, I better change my ways or else I'm going to go to hell, then what's happening to you? Yeah, maybe you do change your ways. Maybe you start living a more moral life. Maybe you even get really religious, going to church, tithing your money, listening to Christian radio. What, what, who are you doing that for in that scenario? You or God? You're not doing it for God. You're doing it for yourself. All that does is make the hell that's already growing inside of you worse. It just stokes the fire. It doesn't get the selfishness and the pride and the self-centeredness out of your heart. It just rearranges the furniture a little bit. In fact, Tim Keller, the great writer I just mentioned a moment ago, he says that if you're doing that, then what you're saying essentially is this. You're saying, well, if I live a really good enough life, then God will have to give me the things I'm basing my identity on. Give me success, give me family, give me a man or woman of my dreams, take me to heaven. In other words, Keller says, God is still the means to an end, to get the things you're really building your identity on. Just to suddenly get really moral and go to church and read your Bible and do all these good things out of fear of hell, he says, you're just turning up the flames. Fear will never change the deepest structures of your heart. Fear will never pull the self-centeredness out of your heart. It will only make it worse. What will change you? Love. And you may say, where do we see love in this passage, Jesus shows us. Actually, it's just a hint, but it's a powerful hint. Remember the rich man asked Abraham, he says, send Lazarus back to warn my brothers. And Abraham says, it'll never work. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man, he protests. He says, no, no. If someone goes back from the dead, they'll listen. And Abraham says, no. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And it's very interesting. Jesus has Abraham said, even if someone should rise from the dead, the rich man just said, if someone comes back from the dead. But Jesus here is very specifically, he's pointing to his own resurrection. It's very interesting what he says here. He's saying it's not enough just to see Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. You have to know why he died and rose from the dead. And in order to know why, you have to listen to Moses and the prophets. We talked about this a little bit last week. Moses and the prophets is shorthand for the whole Bible. Jesus is saying that the whole Bible is talking about me. Every page of the Bible whispers my name. Every page of the Bible is talking about me. Every page of the Bible is showing you not just that I died, but why I died. Why did Jesus die? What do the prophets say about Jesus? What did the prophet Isaiah say? 
He said, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was stricken. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed, disintegrated for our iniquities. Jesus was crushed. Jesus was disintegrated to take the hell out of your heart. How did he do that? By taking it into his heart. Do you think that it was just physical pain and torture that Jesus endured on the cross? Do you think it was just the nails and the thorns and the spear in his side? Was that all that happened to Jesus on the cross? That was the least of it. What really happened to him on the cross? Go back to our images for hell, fire and darkness. What's fire? It's disintegration. Anytime you build your identity on something other than God, disintegration. You disintegrate. But on the cross, do you realize what happened? Jesus is the center of the universe. And on the cross, the center of everything was disintegrated and decentered so that you could be reintegrated and recentered on him. And what about darkness? What is that? That's separation from God. Utter darkness, utter aloneness, utter forsakenness, eternal forsakenness. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you cast me outside far away from your presence? All the fire, all the disintegration, all the darkness, all the separation, all the hell, all the utter aloneness, all of it fell into the heart of Jesus so that he could pull it out of your heart. Friends, Jesus died on the cross not to get you out of hell, but to get hell out of you. What's going to change your heart? When you see someone love you, that changes your heart. When you see someone sacrifice their life for you, that changes your heart. How much more when it's the eternal God of the universe doing it for you? Do you see the beauty and the mystery and the wonder of this? The Bible says that angels long to look into this, the gospel. That angels yearn to peer into the mystery and the wonder and the beauty of what God did on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's almost as if the Bible is saying that there's this veil in front of the angels that keeps them from, from looking fully into it. But for you, the veil has been pulled back. Just a little bit, and the clouds have parted, and through those clouds, just a, a single shaft of light comes piercing through to give you just an inkling of the wonder of the love that God has for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus do that for you? Because he loves you. He loves you. What's going to change your heart? Only this. Only when you see the love that God has for you on the cross, that Jesus endured hell for you. That's the cost. Only when you see what it cost him to love you will your heart be transformed. Do you see what it cost Jesus to love you? It cost him hell, literally. And ironically, if we try to make God a more loving God, because we've got all these intellectual difficulties, we've got all these problems and all these questions about hell. If we try to make God a more loving God, it fits our mental framework better. If we try to make him more loving by getting rid of the doctrine of hell, what we're really doing is, is we're saying we don't want a God whom it cost anything to love us. 
We're saying, God, I'm actually already pretty good all by myself. I don't need your help. Leave me alone. Every time we say that, we're just turning up the fire, that little pilot light of hell that's already inside of us. We're just stoking the fire. We're just turning up the flames. Listen, I know that hell is hard. I know that it's difficult. I don't like it either. But at the end of the day, there's going to come a point for every single one of us when the questions and the intellectual difficulties, when it ends up becoming a smokescreen and a way of keeping it distant, we just want to kind of keep it at arm's length because we've got our questions, we've got our intellectual difficulties. It's a way, we're asking, what about all the other people? What about these people over here? What about those people over there? It's not about those other people. This is about you. Jesus is not addressing this question to us intellectually. He's addressing it to your will and to your heart and asking you, what are you doing about the hell that's already inside of you? Will you let me take it out of you? At the end of the day, asking questions like that becomes a way of keeping God at arm's length. And if we do that, not only does that darken your heart to the hell that's already inside of you, it cheapens the love that God wants to pour out on you. Friends, the the cross shows us the cost of what it cost God to love you. That is the only love that will change you. Hell shows us a God who refused to leave you alone because Jesus was utterly and totally alone on the cross. He was left alone so that God would never, ever have to leave you alone. Do you see him doing that for you? Do you know that you need God to do that for you? Embrace that. Accept it. Let it change you into a person that knows a little bit more about your own heart, into a person that is able to be just a little bit more peaceful vehicle of justice in this world, and somebody who's come face to face with the love of God portrayed for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.